Welcome to NGFE Radio, where the rubber leaves the dirt and hits the studio. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of NGFE Radio. Here with the uh, usual crew, uh, myself, Jordan. Danny. Big Lou here. What's up? And our special guest today is Dennis Duty. What's up, Dennis? Welcome to the show. Hi there. First time. <laughs> First time, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Dennis. <laughs> Dennis is a local uh, rider, um, longtime rider. I mean, I would say, probably one of the privateers around here for riding. Yep. And uh, just thought he'd be a cool guest to talk to today. Mm-hmm. So, all right, Dennis. Well, uh, since it's Memorial, uh, we're coming to Memorial Weekend. We think it felt I felt appropriate to uh, to bring in a veteran uh, that served our own forces. So, talk a little bit about uh, serving in the Marines. When did you start? Well, I and, actually uh, was in the Marine Corps twice. Honored twice. the discharge in 77 the first time. Went through some turmoil in my life and went back in the Marine Corps again in 1986. Subsequently got out, honorably discharged a second time in 1990. Ended up as a rank of corporal, jump wings, a few other things. And um, as I like to tell people, I clean toilets in 13 different countries. <laughs> <laughs> Which means I've been to 13 different countries. So who had to clean his bathrooms? Uh, <laughs> nasty, gnarly. <laughs> it took a lot of cleaning. Yeah. So, with all your travels, uh, what country do you think like you would come back and visit? Well, I was actually stationed in Naples, Italy for two years. Okay. Uh, That's cool. Security force company over there, counterterrorism, uh, between 87 and 89. Wow. And it's some beautiful country. If you can get over to Europe, you really need to. Uh, statues every 10 feet piazzas, fountains, um, worn down roads that have been there for like thousands of years. Um, just amazing. You should, anybody that can get over Europe, uh-huh. pick a country and then go to a couple more because you're right there close. Right on. Now, which one would you not go back to? <laughs> I would not go back to Panama. No Panama, huh? No Panama. <laughs> Jungles are terrible. Um, there's things that like to eat you and bite you and sting you and otherwise molest you. <laughs> um, we weren't there having fun in Panama. Um, Interesting. That was in '89 from Noriega, and I'd really rather be somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> My brother's been there too. He was in the Navy, and he he said the same thing. It's a little rough. It was in the town. It's nice, but when you're in the boondocks in the jungle, it's pretty pretty ugly. Even just the proximity to the equator. Yeah. We, we stepped off the plane. We're like, oh, this is gonna suck. <laughs> Yeah, it's so hot. It rains. I think the average rainfall was like 150 inches a year. We're like, wait a minute. That's not a lot of rain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my brother was on an aircraft carrier, and he said the deck was like 130 degrees, 135 degrees. And you're standing out there fully clothed. He's in his fire gear and everything. It's like, that's rough. But it's all part of it, for sure. That's what you signed up for, I guess, right? Yeah, that's why we appreciate it. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, Did you uh, experience any combat? Um, um, while you were on, de- on deployment? Yeah, but it's one of those things where I think the politically correct answer is just, you know, I did what I was told to do. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was told to go work the Special Olympics one time, uh, that was three very hard days, very rewarding. Um, you put as much into that as you do any other deployment. So, yeah, I was, I've been deployed a bunch. Um, huh. Kind of just leave it at that. <laughs> I, I did what I did and I was happy that I came back mostly whole. And, yeah. Uh, there's other guys that didn't. I feel sorry for them. Mm-hmm. But you know you have to encourage the guys to come back missing parts. I mean the current war guys are coming back in bad shape. Yeah. So you got to encourage them and help them. Now you, you you go back to Pendleton quite quite regularly, right? You yes. go out there. Yeah, it's it's kind of fun to see the old haunts. Yeah. Has it changed much? Parts of it has. You know they they've grown. They they put. PXs and training facilities where we didn't used to have them. Um, I try not to go into the sensitive areas because I don't technically have clearance for that. Um, but, you know, just cruising around and sightseeing, you know, looking like a tourist. Um, <laughs> it's it's grown up. It's modernized. You know, we had a lot of Kwanzaa huts and now they got, like, tilt-ups. Mm-hmm. I did some asphalt work there uh, near the, I guess, the airport or something there around the corner. Basalone, I guess. Is there Basalone Road? That'd be over by Marguerite. Yeah, right over there. Interesting. I mean, there's a lot of activity. We're there like at midnight doing night work, and there's people. 
driving all over the place. A, and the, the military police are just flying, man. Just their sirens on, and just like, oh, what's going on? It's here? a busy base. Yeah, There's a lot going I, on. Yeah. I didn't realize how big it is. Yeah, People it's pretty big. Training is going on 28 hours a day. There's some overlap. <laughs> no, I mean we'll be riding up at the luge, and you know, on their bomb uh, testing days, you hear the bombs going off from the luge, and that's that's a long ways away, but it's yeah. active. Yeah, they actually give audio warnings on their Facebook. Really? If you get on the Camp Pendleton Facebook, they give warnings for um, things of that nature because Rancho Santa Margarita and some of those uh, actually feel it. Yeah. And it, it oh, disturbs geez. some of the people that are like low threshold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're a bunch of miles away. So That's crazy. Did you have a passion for cycling while you were in the military, or was this after the military? Like riding bikes? Oh, cycling. Yeah. Um, well, like any other kid back in the 60s, it was really cool to get off a bicycle and get your driver's license. Um, and then all of a sudden I discovered bicycles again. It was more fun, you know, because now it wasn't no stigma attached that, oh, you, you didn't have a car. Yeah. Now a bicycle was a cool thing. Mm-hmm. And mountain biking was coming of age in the mid-80s, and my brother had one of the first Diamondbacks, you know, had the big old two-inch wide tires. and. <laughs> uh, the brakes mostly worked, and it had a bunch of gears, you know. So uh, it was pretty fun, and so I got into it from that. And then when I was in the Marine Corps, the second time before I got out, I was looking to see what I could afford to do for a sport. You know, am I going to get back into scuba diving, kayaking, you know, this, that. You know, what's the buy-in? What's the time away from home? Well, mountain biking, I can go have a whole bunch of fun in a couple hours and be right back with the family. Mm-hmm. So that's where I settled on. Mountain biking. Good sport. Tough choices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, scuba diving. Wow. That's cool. Were you a certified a scuba diver or like a dive master? No, I, I was certified um, with the long course. They didn't have short courses. Uh, I've been certified since 75. Wow. And we had to do beach rescues, the medical um, rescues, all the other different stuff. Now they've subdivided it so you can just become a basic diver and go have fun. Back then, you had to do everything or nothing. You know? Wow. But it so was it's a lot tougher back in the day then. Well, they just hadn't discovered that, you know, because more people didn't want to stick it out for a super strenuous course yeah. with actually a pass-fail. Mm-hmm. They just wanted to go have fun scuba diving. <laughs> so the diving industry evolved and, and made it more fun for more people by by subdividing some of the criteria, the, the qualifications. Hmm. Yeah, sport versus utility. Yeah, in a way. you yeah. weren't meant to be, you know, a commercial hard hat diver and spend yeah. nine or ten hours underwater. You were meant to go have fun, you know, yeah. look for stuff that people drop and yeah. just see things that you can't see. Yeah, that's cool. So with the with the progression of mountain biking, um, obviously in the eighties. I mean, uh, when did you? Because you're a frame builder, as we know. Um, mm-hmm. We haven't said that yet. You're a frame builder. So when did you decide? Was it a decision to start building frames because the geometry wasn't there? Or was it just because you wanted your own bike? No, it's because I built stuff all my life. My dad, I grew up on overhead pipe welding, uh, and I had a weld certified when I was 10 years old, so my dad could win a bet. So I've been welding, building things literally all my life. So in the mid-90s, I wanted to get into frame building because I just thought it would be fun. Uh, never really meant to earn a living doing it, just a fun thing. You know, you read all the publications and there's all these niche, small, you know, frame builders. And So anyway, I took the United Bicycle Institute titanium class two weeks nice. up in Ashland, Oregon. That's cool. Because it didn't make any sense to me to try and do something as complex as a bicycle, um, even though it doesn't look complex. It got is. a lot of things going on. Yeah. So I wanted to get proper instruction, so my wife gave me permission. <laughs> uh, and back then, uh, titanium frames were selling for 2500 to $3,000 all day long. Well, I was going to leave with a titanium frame for $2,500 cost of the class. That's a total complete... That's a deal. That's yeah. a deal. That's a deal. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, score! <laughs> you know, because a uh, steel class was like 1850 So the price, the price difference to actually build a titanium... Uh, but you had to have the welding skill and you had to have the yeah. the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I only make Columbus steel frames now because it's it's more affordable. For me to buy, you know, custom one-off tube sets, I can't even compete with production. Mm-hmm. And those guys have got it all over me all day long. Yeah. 
but I do repairs and tube replacements and you know you lean it over on cocktail rock and it's three weeks old the manufacturer's going to be really understanding but they're not going to warranty it. It right. wasn't a warranty. Mm-hmm. So people come to me with, with broken or bent frames. Sometimes I can fix them. Sometimes I just tell them, hey, hang out on the wall, tell stories about it. <laughs> so is there a prerequisite for those classes, or is it more keep yourself accountable for knowing what you're doing going into it? You have to be able to weld. Yeah. I mean, I they did actually, we had a guy that was so uh, compromised that they welded this frame. Oh, but geez. that didn't mean he was going to go home and make any frames. No. You know, he, but he had the nicest looking one because the instructor's welded. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know. Automatic no, no character to it, though, that's for sure. Um, yeah, the, the group photo, he's probably the only guy that was asleep during the photo because he really just didn't care. His rich aunt sent him and he wanted to do it. And I guarantee he never built another frame. I've been building frames. Uh, I, I try to make a different mistake on every frame that I build. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had one come out really perfect, but you know I keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the, with the mix of alignment and tube length, and make sure the junctions are, are you know close enough. I'm sure it's a it's a hard job. I mean it's it's a time consuming job. Well, there should again, say. find something. I have currently an anvil uh, frame fixture, and he takes his stuff very very serious. He was a student of uh, United Bicycle Institute, but he was a machinist first. So when he came out, he decided to start making frame fixtures. If you go on his website, he takes it out to like four or five uh, digits away from decimal, and then tells you straight up. He recalibrates, rechecks monthly, all of his stuff. And if you can find a frame fixture that's more um, uh, properly aligned than his, you need to buy that one. <laughs> but he's taking it out like so many decimal. Like, okay, this is really true. That's awesome. <laughs> this is nice. That's cool. So. How many frames have you built in uh, your career building estimate, frames? Estimate. Estimate. Estimate, yeah, frames. roughly. You know, I've been building frames since 1997. I averaged, a good average, I was making six to eight frames a year because I was working construction. Our times varied every day, so, you know, I couldn't really put it out there and try to make a living doing it. I had to do it on the side. Mm-hmm. One year I made 27 frames, and it just about oh, Wow. Um, That's a lot. Yeah. I, I'm like, I don't want to do that ever again. No. Um, was it was it all by mouth, word of mouth, that yes. uh, people got a hold of you? Yes, that's um, just one of those things. I don't want to advertise. I don't want to be big. Yeah. You know, uh, everybody says, well, what do you call your frames? I go, I don't want my name on your frame. You pay for it. You know, go get some custom stickers. Put your wife's birthday like I did on my tie frame. Put your kid's birthday. Do your anniversary or something. Call it whatever you want to call it. You don't want my name on your frame. So that's cool. I kind of refuse to. People call it the chunk wrap, but there's kind of a story there. <laughs> Harry Helfrich, who was one of the original founding members of Kestrel, which became Merlin, and he virtually welded every frame for the first three or four years that they were in business until they got big enough to hire some you know, people. There was only three people that made up their company. Wow. He, he welded every single frame. And chunk wrap is kind of his his um, go-to statement and you can insert all kinds of things that it might be what it might mean but um, <laughs> I won't tell you what he told us it means it's just chunk rat's kind of a fun thing so people call my frames chunk rat but they're definitely not officially any name or just so my switch sorry technical difficulties here what do you got just so it pick up better which sorry, watch the beer. Sorry, nice. That's a party foul right there. Almost. <laughs> almost. Yeah, we almost sorry. had an endo right there. Sorry. <laughs> uh, producer Danny made some last-minute changes here. It's an audible. I think I just saw the brilliance right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, have you had people uh, kind of weirded out by the fact that you don't have a name, or they just like, did they want a name for the frame, or were they all really pretty satisfied with that? Or basically, what I've had, I I chase more people away than what I build frames for, for two main reasons. They tell me like, oh, I'm gonna strip everything off the first bike and put it on the second frame. Yeah, it's probably not gonna give you a good fit. No. The other thing is that they've never tried to experiment with anything. They haven't changed stems, seat posts. They haven't even changed uh, the position of their saddle rails, um, crank arm lengths, anything. They just all of a sudden decide they need this custom frame. Well, if I do that, 
sure, I make a little bit of money, but then as soon as the guy gets angry because, well, now it doesn't, it doesn't do what I wanted it to do. Well, you put all the wrong stuff on it. You know, you got two different length crank arms. You got this and that going on. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not my fault, but that's all <laughs> after the fact. They've given you cash. You know, now they're upset. Right. So I tell them, go to the path. You know, get fit. You know, change some stuff in your own bike. Start in the clearance takeoff room. You know, once you dial it in, then you can go buy the expensive parts. Mm -hmm. But to start with, you need to dial it in. You know, change handlebars three or four times. Don't just run it for one or two rides. Run it for three or four months and realize, yeah, I really, really dislike this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's making me angry every time I ride. <laughs> or I really like this, it fits. You know, that was a good score. So, you know, that's the thing. Is most people are not willing to change things on their bike. They just want to go buy new and have it fit. Yeah, yeah that's kind of hard to do. Especially nowadays, with you have the, the the forward geometry of these new bikes, where it's long front center, and other companies aren't keeping up. Like Cannondale's new bikes are just obscenely obscenely long compared to Santa Cruz. And you know, if you want to be a Santa Cruz uh, owner one year, then go to another company the next year. It's a whole different bike, mm -hmm. you know. And like in your situation, I've actually seen it. I don't know what company it was, but they had a questionnaire of basically a, a like a a filtering process of if you are worthy of a custom frame do you know this do you know you do you want this part do you want this part like like how long of a reach is a good reach for you and it basically had a questionnaire to, to weed out if you're if, if this is going to be a really a, if this is a frame for you kind of thing we talked about dogs earlier too i've seen it with uh with breeders before where there's a questionnaire Mm -hmm. Do you know how to, like, in this situation, what would you do? In this situation, what would you do? And if you don't pass the questionnaire, they're not going to sell you a dog. Hmm. So that's usually with more dangerous breeds or, or dangerous, per se, uh, oh. but larger breeds. But, um, yeah, I mean, you're building these custom frames. It takes you a month or so. you got to make sure you have the right frame. Mm -hmm. Make sure it fits. Well, that's one of the things. Seven Cycles had their trick questions. Yeah. Do you like to ride with your hands off the handlebars? So seven, that might have been what I saw. I saw something about that. Yeah. In fact, so I copied their questionnaire, and some of the questions really seem kind of almost goofy. You know, have you ever tried to jump a curb with your hands off the handlebars? You know, just <laughs> goofy stuff like that. But that doesn't mean you want the 74-degree head angle, you know, because it's going to get twitchy fast. Yeah. And then if you point it downhill... I'll, I'll see you riding it, but I won't ride it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, then you turn into, like, you start looking at fork offset, like, trail numbers and whatnot. I mean, do you, you you put that into account of, like, well, 29ers, obviously the offset has to be a little bit more than uh, 27.5, but do you even get that deep when it comes to that? When 29ers were first coming out, before I even built my first one for myself, I contacted Richard Cunningham. I said, hey, you know, um, what do you think I should be looking at? And I had contacted him a couple of times before with 26 inch wheel questions because that's what everybody in the industry had yeah and he goes don't do this don't do that make small increments you know and he kind of did the same thing that the united bicycle institute said was that you almost can't make a bike that's not rideable but it may only be rideable for a very specific person well <laughs> riding style riding style i can build your bike that'll do figure eights on this table <laughs> don't try to go downhill at speed with it you know <laughs> it's going to be a little twitchy so if you build a bike for a specific reason or use then it might really only be good for that use mm -hmm. so he gave me some some heads up so the first frame i built in 29 wheels actually worked really well i mean i'm slow um i enjoy riding but it handled very well and every time I kept thinking, oh, this is going to happen, like the 29-inch wheel saved me. <laughs> I probably should have crashed a bunch of more times, but I didn't. <laughs> so I had probably not built a 26-inch wheel bike in seven or eight years. Yeah, I believe it. You know, it's a long time. You're the second person to mention Richard Cunningham. Mike Franz talked about Richard Cunningham. i got to meet that guy. I've heard so many good stories about him. He's friendly to everybody, and he's got a history that is amazing. Like, even one of his articles in Mountain Bike Action one time, he talked about on a vacation, he came across some bike shop, they were trying to repair a big wheel bike, like uh, an old fashioned penny farthing. <laughs> and he happened to know the tricks that they needed to know. So he stops in his vacation, he helps him set this bike up and got to ride around the parking lot or something, you know, but they didn't have the welding skills that he had. They didn't have, you know, 
they didn't know what they were doing. They yeah. were trying to repair this thing and get it working. So he just kind of stopped off and helped them. <laughs> That's cool. But, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask. Uh, so when you build bikes or the frames, are they mainly like for like trail use, XC use? I mean, like, like who, who, what kind of customers are, you know? For mountain biking. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, mostly I've only made mountain bikes. Yeah. Well, when I'm, you know, like, bikes. there's people oh, like, yeah. like, are they going to use it for like, you know, like the, the Hanzo or something, you know, slackhead angle or, you know, more like trail use or yeah, like XC. I'm giving you crap. Thanks, well, thanks. I, I kind of <laughs> thanks, fell guy. into a little bit of a mistake, and I had a couple of frames break because the guys wanted light, 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 light. Well, then I see them, like, jumping off of buildings and getting air on every little bump in the trail, and oh. I'm like, oh, it's not going to last, you know. Uh, so sometimes you can kind of buy into what the customer wants, and that's a mistake. You have to tell them what they need sometimes. You know, like I had a guy that was six foot eight, and I'm like, oh, oh how am I going to get tubing for a guy that's six foot eight? Because I do full scale drawings so that you can lay the tube on the drawing and know if it's going to fit. You know, I don't do little computer CAD stuff because I, really? I don't oh, do computers. But um, a full scale drawing, and then you can see if there's like automatically discrepancies in a design. Did I reverse the head and the seat tube angle, or did I, I got. 23 inch chain stays that was supposed to be the length of the top tube or what did I do you know um, so immediately it screams at you you know that serves certain things well this guy that was 6'8 wanted this one too and I'm like okay we can either weld it here or we can weld it here but it's not going to fit on both ends <laughs> you know so we had to pick a different tube that was longer heavier um, he's the only guy that I've made a frame for that was that big and that was on 26 inch wheels too wow that's that was funky. before the 29er so it looked goofy when it was yeah <laughs> but I'm like oh yeah I hope you like it <laughs> there's a company called 36 36er or something yeah. like that they're they build big bikes for big people like Shaq you know mm -hmm. they built a bike for him well I'm hearing uh that Santa Cruz, some Santa Cruz riders messing around with 30 and a half inch wheels, I think. 31 what? inch wheels. I just saw it on Pink Bike the other day. I don't know if you guys seen it at all. No. Some uh, riders messing with uh, with 30 inch wheels or 30 and a half inch wheels. Bigger than 29, for sure. Like, who I don't know what. Tire? I have no idea. There's there's people messing with it. I mean, well, so with downhill nowadays, you have downhill guys on 29ers. Right. So obviously 29 seems to be taken off. Um, which makes sense. The 26ers are dying off in, in your frame building, but 29ers, man, that's that's the bike. <laughs> it seems to be the, the the choice nowadays for anything, really. Yeah. I mean, it's all preference. I mean, most of us have 27.5 bikes. Besides, I mean, Lou, you have a 29er, but yeah. Brenton. What do you Brenton. What do you ride, Brenton? <laughs> High tower. High tower. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Tell Brenton. <laughs> 27.5 still around, but yeah, 29 inch wheels seem to be the thing. That's, da that's Dave. You got a trance? I have a tar out. A Taro? 29, yeah. 29, okay. Yeah. Yeah, wheel size has been kind of funky. So has that been hard? Do you build frames often anymore, or are you still? I have not built a complete frame in about two years. Wow. Okay. Going on two years. What I've done is a bunch of upgrades, repairs. Mm. Um, I mean, if you're changing certain tubes, you've got to put, put the whole thing into a fixture anyway. So I'm still using my fixture, but I've not built a complete frame. So I'm thinking about building a Columbus set for my uh, my fat bike. Nice. Um, just so I can do a, a complete frame again. Yeah. I was. I mean, in this time with with standards changing so much, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, standards changing, axle sizes changing. How do you keep up with all that? But I think with you not making frames recently <laughs> is probably nice. Like well, no, not having to keep up. I had to buy the 142 through axle yeah. uh, bits for my fixture. Yeah. I had to buy the taper head tube parts. Yeah. So, you know, I probably got like an additional five or six hundred dollars in things that I needed. But then, you know, there's just too many deals to be had. And again, most people don't really need a custom frame. Yeah. You know, it's kind of fun. It's kind of neat. Um, you know, I've made like six or seven for myself or and a few more for some of my buddies just because we can, you know. So it, sometimes it's kind of fun knowing the guy. Mm-hmm. And my wife's like, what are you building? I'm like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> my buddy gave me this fork, so it, it messed up the geometry on my other bike, so I'm building a frame for that fork. She goes, oh, nice, so what's it going to cost to put it all together? I'm like, oh, not much. <laughs> the numbers, the numbers. It's so funny, building a frame around a fork instead yeah. of buying a fork around a frame. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because all of a sudden I get this birthday present, I'm like, I want a fully rigid single speed. 
And I'm like, oh, well, it might be kind of nice to have a front fork. But it changed the geometry to the point where I couldn't climb anything with it. Yeah. You know, I was like all over the trail and it was kind of nice going downhill, but, you know, I couldn't clean anything anymore. And so I went back to the rigid single speed so I could climb. So then I built a custom frame for the other fork. <laughs> and it worked a lot better. <laughs> do, you, do you still, uh, when you're repairing bikes, is it mainly just other brand bikes or do you get like some of your old, like some of the stuff that you built? coming back I've repaired some of mine because um, for a long time some of the uh, tubing manufacturers wouldn't sell to me because I was so small you know I wasn't going to do a bajillion feet of tubing every year so like Nova will send you one tube you know unfortunately what they weren't doing for many many years was anything bigger than a 27.2 C post and when you get big heavy guys you know you kind of need something more yeah. so I had a few C tubes fail um, replace those replace the frame whatever you got to do you know um you know my r&d is just me um i ride pretty light for kind of a heavier guy um people i know that break crank arms and pedals and all this other stuff i'm like how do you do that yeah you know you're, you're really abusing the bike don't buy one of my frames <laughs> <laughs> you know go buy somebody that's got a lifetime warranty yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. but, so, so there's actually uh, companies that build just like tubing for bicycles. You just can't go like to let's say industrial metal supply and like buy that material there. Well, you can. Oh, you can. Okay. Um, they industrial metal supply sells chromoly. Yeah. But you're going to get a wall thickness that's going to be more tank. <laughs> yeah. Uh, equivalent. Mm -hmm. You know, you're probably not going to be able to break that frame. Might not even put a dent in the tubing. You know, where some of my stuff, I have to be careful because you know. Given the lighter riders, I've, I've got tubes that are uh, 0 0.6, 0 0.4, 0 0.6, and that's a really, really thin tube. Yeah. Um, some of the, the heavier guys, uh, I've got, what is it, 9, 0 0.9, 0 0.8, 0.9. They're all double butted, but they're way more thicker. <laughs> yeah. It's all, it's all TIG welding you right on your, on your frames. All, all TIG, it's all yes. TIG, yeah. Have you uh, ridden a tight bike before, Jordan? I have not. No, I have not. I, I wish I have, but Ty, I mean, I, I don't have the money for it. <laughs> Being they're 20, 20 well, years expensive. old. Yeah, they're not the... So they're still expensive, you, you know, even, you know, years later. Oh, they're not going down in price. I mean, yeah. titanium itself is such an expensive material to begin with. I mean, in our machining business, there's guys that machine bolts out of titanium, and you're talking, you know, $30 bolts, $40 bolts, and they're like about an inch long, you know? So it's it's... Not a cheap material, and it's hard to work with. Um, I would yeah, imagine there's a lot too. of tool loss. Yeah, because the sharpness of the tools yeah. go away real fast. That's another reason I don't really, I can't justify trying to build a complete titanium frame, except for the one I did in the class. It was all their tools, their argon, because you have to purge the entire frame. Yep. Uh, you can't see the the discoloration, but. Uh, if you look at titanium jewelry with all the really cute colors, mm -hmm. if you ever see that on a bicycle frame, you need to go running screaming because all those colors are... That's um, a bad sign? I'm sorry? That's a bad sign? Yeah. That's really, really <laughs> Yeah. And, and what, what they tell you is it's not a question if it's going to break, it's when it's going to break. Wow. Yeah, that's contamination because titanium will contaminate all the way back down to like 250 degrees. So you have to keep the argon field around and keep it pure. You know, you raise your hood, if you do any air movement or anything when you stop a uh, part of a weld and it contaminates, well, if it's got those colors in it, then you might as well just hang it on the wall and call it a story. Toss yep. it away, wow. I don't, if, I don't know if you've seen the videos, uh, Moots, they have like a inside the factory video and they show you the welders and their process, obviously not in detail, mm -hmm. but they show that cleansing process and just the meticulous aspect of it needs to be clean it needs to, you need to have the right uh environment for it and it's it's amazing to watch and i would assume too if they're going to spend that much money on a frame you have to be a really good welder and you look at a moots frame if you're going to spend 3500 bucks on a frame those welds need to be perfect so if, if you run into that issue too well, probably if your quality is not as good as the next guy you i know? think the catchphrase is industry standard yeah. you know when uh, early aluminum frames in the 90s were coming out and all the magazines called them big, heavy, cobby welds. Yeah, they're, they're ham-fisted. <laughs> you know, but to me, they were a thing of beauty because that's how you weld aluminum. Then Cannondale started drying them down. Yeah. For the looks. Yeah, so every, now you got this smooth, sexy, if 
but how far do they grind into the mm -hmm. metal and did they compromise anything and then they had a recall in stems so they quit grinding the stems so you know there's certain things you can do and certain things you can't do sometimes you learn it doesn't matter what the engineers you know do on paper every once in a while there's just practical application like do you know a guy that jumps off of everything and slams the bike back down and you know I, I've destroyed two wheels in all the years I've been riding one I was throwing her over the fence from a mud ride because it was so muddy we couldn't finish the ride so we we're bailing out and getting out of El Moral and I bent the wheel when it landed it's <laughs> not even a crash story you know and, and then a couple of weeks later I was riding on the newly rebuilt wheel and I crashed and a guy crashed on top of me and bent the same wheel again so I had to go tell my wife, yeah, i got to get the wheel rebuilt a third time now. <laughs> but neither time was it a crash. You know, right. It wasn't abuse on my point. So you get people that just ride heavy, people that ride soft. Yeah. I think going slow helps me ride soft. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I guess, again, with the welding, aluminum frames tend to have bigger welds, it seems. like Because like, of the metallurgy. Okay. I, I, don't, I don't know about this if stuff. If you look at, like, um, microscopic, you can pull it up on the Internet, and just look at microscopic, um, the grain structure. Um, basically, aluminum is like long grain rice mm -hmm. compared to very, very tight with stainless or regular steel. And so when it goes molten, all that's just kind of floating around. So you're having to realign. That's that's why if you go molten with aluminum frame, it has to be reheat treated. You can't get away with it. Mm -hmm. So I can't repair an aluminum frame unless you're willing to pay for heat treat, which is not something I can do. It has yeah. to be sent out. Yeah. So you come in, you need some, you know, minimal thing welded, repaired, but then you got to pay like another two hundred dollars for the heat treat. Yeah. So next thing you know, the guy's hanging on the wall, tell stories about it, go buy a new frame at the path. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you look at titanium frame welds, that's why I ask. Like a tie frame weld, the beads are so small and it's all perfect. Like Moots looks like a machine has done it before, but you see people doing it by hand in the video. But just, I, I didn't know if that was, I didn't know the, the details behind that of why it's so small compared to aluminum, yeah, but that makes it sense. it has a lot to do with the grain structure, um, the miter itself. You know, a lot of these big companies have got uh, laser mitering, so there's like really, really no gaps. Yeah. Um, you know, there's... It's quality. I, also, I yes. also grew up doing oxacetylene, so I have a bad habit of doing wider welds. That doesn't mean they're weak, it just means they're wider. So, yeah. you know, if you look at some of the different steel frames and compared to mine you know my welds are strong they pass you know test but they're wider yeah so on a welding inspection they go well you know you're only supposed to be so many you know so so many thousands wider than the, the filler rod and everything i've got bad habits from an early age yeah so on the technicality mine is stronger there's more filler rod but on the industry standard Quote unquote, <laughs> they're gonna go. That's not right. So yeah, they work. They work. Yeah. Did you? Uh, so they there is a like an expo for like hand built bikes, right? They have like a small frame builders. Yeah. Yeah. What's the name of that? Uh, do, do you know that the name of that? The North American Handmade Bike Show. Yeah. North right. American Handmade Bike Show. Thank you, Dave Hardwick. Have you been to that? <laughs> I went to the one in San Diego, <laughs> and uh, there was even a guy that had his name of his company is Irish Wolfhound Bikes. Oh, nice. <laughs> his head two badges are Irish Wolfhound. So I've got a, a Wolfie. So I, I ran over and I started looking at his frames. And he makes some really beautiful stuff. His basic startup first first price point is like 2600 bucks For the frame? For the frame. And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> I don't know if they're that nice. And I'm not talking <laughs> about the guy because he makes beautiful stuff. I mean, he, he hand files lugs and everything else. Wow. And just, yeah. He does amazing. He's got to pay for his hours. Yeah. I'm like, okay, but I just can't afford that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's doing that uh, artistic upcharge probably. You know, it's, but, um, again, I'm sure he's put a lot of time of into it. Some so beautiful. Yeah. Um, and But you're paying for hours. Yeah. You know, do you just put it together and weld it or do you do all the little, I mean, he had like relief holes in his lugs that were just beautiful. You don't buy them that way. Yeah. You know, this He's drilling them out, hand filing them. So, you know, again, you're just paying for hours. Yeah. You know, it's out of his life, away from his family. Somebody's got to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. The end user's going to pay for it. Uh, Greg from the shop, he uh, he got this custom titanium bike built, and he had nothing but problems with that bike. I think it was like a fat bike or something. It's like he 
told the manufacturer or the guy that's that's building them, you know. Oh, like, Hotchkiss. Yeah, 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 Hotchkiss, yeah. yeah. I was just talking to him about Over the Hump. About did did yeah, he tell yeah. you the story? Yeah, yeah. And he had to I, send it back. The fork he had custom made, the fork wasn't even right. Yeah, the bars, the, the handlebars were... Yeah. I was like, dude, these are going to bend. I mean, the titanium stuff was like so like paper thin. Yeah. Like, dude... This is dangerous. The shape was wrong. So, like, I think I think it was like a mix between length and shape. Everything was wrong, but it was one of those uh, stem handlebar, like one piece stem mm-hmm. handlebar uh, titanium setups like from the eighties. Yeah, <laughs> kind of retro. Yeah, and yeah. he, kind of he it was all custom yeah, made, cool. and he had issues from day one. It was like it was bad, and yeah, he spent some money on that thing. I think he spent like uh, five thousand dollars. It's it was worth five thousand. I don't know how he something well, about it. He see like, that that's what he told me. Like, yeah. but but the fork and the bar, you know, the handlebars and stuff like that. You know, it was like five grand or something like that. But yeah, he had a bad experience. But I mean, it's that's only one company. You know, it's one of those things. But right. you, you spend know, that kind of money, you think you're gonna get the right that's a part. Lot of money dude, for, for <laughs> just for the frame. Yep. Frame. You know? Well, frame frame fork and handlebar. But see, still, no, that's one of the things that I always argue with people. Everybody over the last eight or ten years has gone to effective measurements. Well, there's nothing effective on my fixture. There's nothing there. You know, I'm building it. <laughs> you have to have real measurements of real point to point. So, and then with the effective thing, I can take a finished bicycle, measure the chain stays one way, and they're 17 inches, measure them another way, and all of a sudden now they're like 15 and three quarter. So, you know, for the marketing hype and all that stuff, um, I have to hammer into people. I made a, a road bike for a guy that all of a sudden he calls me up and he goes, hey, top tube's too long, I'm running like a 50 millimeter stem. And I go, well, I explained to you how to measure, how to do this. He goes, well, I gave you all the effective measurements. I'm like, oh, man. So effective, if you look on a magazine or a brochure and then measure it the way I tell you, like from the center of the head tube to the center of the seat tube top. Actual. Actual measurement, because that's what I cut tubes to. Yeah. It's one measurement. If you come all the way up here in space on the effective, it's usually about an inch longer. So he gave me measurements that were, I wonder why his chain stays were so long. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, just keep, keep burning it I up. thought he just wanted to be comfortable on the road, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's been a topic lately with, uh, with Tawny at the shop is the geometry charts from these companies. So seat tube is a big thing lately on these bikes. So seat tube angle is... There's effective, there's actual, you have frames that have these interrupted seat tubes like Trek mm-hmm. that'll say that it's a 74, but you look, it's got a severe bend at the end. So if, if you're, if you're a, if you're a tall, I mean, it's probably got like a 65 degree bend at the, at the second half. If you're a tall guy and that seat post goes up like myself, I can run like a 170 post on a 19 inch seat tube and I'm only six one because my, obviously I have a long inseam. So if my seat goes that high up, you're that much further back. So the effective becomes so when a different you're climbing thing. steep technical, your front end's coming up. Yeah. So that's the thing where the effective part comes in. But no company has a standard of again, industry standard of how how high the saddle is for what your effective seat angle is and everything. So in your situation, when you're doing everything on paper, yeah, you just you just want the point to point. Well, and that's another thing too. Before I built my very first 2900 frame. Um, I went to three companies uh, at Interbike and got the specs for their 29ers, which 29ers were pretty new then. And they all had the same um, bottom bracket height, but they all claimed different bottom bracket drops and bits and pieces. So <laughs> I just measured it out on paper, and Spot was the most accurate. And so I copied their frame design for my very first frame. They're a German company, right? Spot? Not sure. They had this pretty pretty cool endurance. I only bike. saw them at, at Interbike, but Might I don't know where nice. they're from. But yeah. they were nice, and they were yeah. they were honest about their measurements. So, you know, oh, yeah. So the the bottom bracket height was supposed to be the same in all three bikes, but they all three had different bottom bracket drops. There should be no difference. So that would have made differences, but they were all supposed to be twelve and a half inches. Yeah. So anyway, when you when you measure it out, put it on paper, um, you can start to see what the truth is. So that's another reason why I do full-scale drawings is if there's some glaring, if all of a sudden your bottom bracket's only this far off the ground, it's like, whoops. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and, and nowadays, too, it depends on what, I mean, it, it gets so detailed. It depends on tire choice. Mm-hmm. So you have Maxxis. I mean, uh, Maxxis has 2.8. 2. They have 2. Well, 2. well, 2.8 plus, but they have twenty uh, 2.6 now, which is like the mid-plus tire. It's but a plus. It, you, can, you can put a... <laughs> no, I used to run the 2.6s for downtown. 
And like that's the old yeah. downhill standard. Yeah, downhill they, they used to have all sorts of. Yeah, like a like a twenty six, two point six, two point seven just looked like a motorcycle tire. It's so yeah. rad. But no, you look at these bikes. So uh, the new the new pivot that just came out, the pivot uh, was the Mach five point five point five. They're coming spec with two point six tires, but it's just a twenty seven five bike. How do they measure the bottom bracket? Is it measured for the two point six tire, or if someone puts a like a two point one tire on it on the back, does that drop it like half an inch? Or I mean, obviously not half an inch, but maybe like a couple mils. It yeah. makes a big difference. So that's probably why their measurements were so off. Right, and, this tire. and that's some of the variables. Yeah. Uh, on my tie bike that I built at the class, I was running currently two three five rear tire once, and I went to put a two two five on, and the two two five wouldn't even go into the frame. It's like, wait a minute, it's supposed to be a smaller tire. The 235 had space. I've been running it for months. I just wanted to buy a new tire. You know, I had that urge to spend money. And <laughs> so you I check out the wife? Uh, well, I, <laughs> I, I begged. I grovel very well. Yeah. <laughs> I've been married almost 28 years now. So and they I, say it's, it's better to uh, ask for forgiveness than for permission, right? Or something sometimes. Like that. <laughs> sometimes nothing helps. You just <laughs> you're, you're on your own, huh? But the frustrating thing, though, was I'm, I'm trying to put a smaller tire in this frame, and it wouldn't fit. So, again, you know, there's marketing. Um, did they get something bad from the tire manufacturer, but they had great intentions? Did they just, like, blow it off and call it this because that's what everybody was running at the time? Um, I don't know. I had to return the tire, which yeah. I don't return parts. It's like one of my things. I don't. If I buy it, it's mine. Yeah. You know, I don't like going back with stuff. I had to take it, and by now I already had talcum powder inside and everything. I'm trying to clean it up. I'm like, duh. So I ended up giving the tire to somebody else instead of returning it. That's a, that's another thing with tires. Like, there's really no like standard. Like one manufacturer can say this is a 2.4 or whatever, and then you measure it's like something else. Mm-hmm. Well, so what was the fitment issue? Was it like the the tubes bent back in? Like the like was like the wishbone came back in and then the 2.5 wasn't clear in that or what, what no, wasn't no, that's clear? a weird thing this is the tie frame i built in the united bicycle Institute class i was running like i don't remember the manufacturer i think a kenda 235 and it still had enough room to, to you know for like a little bit of mud and dirt we're southern california oh, so the, the, the side to side like the clearance on the on the side to side yeah like the... you couldn't even put it in the frame mm-hmm. with a 225 what uh, brand 225 was it do you I remember i remember now yeah, the 235 from, from Kenda is pretty small. The older ones, they were small. Yeah. So that's probably well, this why. This was 26. Yeah. I think but it could have been like a Conti. Conti's are pretty, that, that's a high volume tire. Well, anything compared to Kenda, too, though. Kenda yeah. had some really small tires. Their, their 235 was kind of like the laughing stock for a while. Taiwanese in, uh, um, engineers are like, oh, you know what? I was talking to Roger about that. Uh, when they when they do the measurements, um, they measure them with the tire fully inflated, like to max PSI. 60 PSI. Yeah, 80 PSI, whatever it is. And like, oh, that's. That's what it is. Well, you compare like a Hans Dampf, like <laughs> nope. a, like a, a Schwalbe, the Hans Dampf 235 versus any other 235. It's huge. Like a mm-hmm. two, it's almost like a 25 DHF, like the width. So that is true. The standards are pretty funky with tire width. Everything's funky. But yeah. It's like, why can't you guys just like, this we, is a large, that's a medium, that's a small, or whatever, you know? People want I think we s- talked about it in one, of our, in one of our episodes, but. People want six more mils on the rear axle, but they don't want to get the tires all figured out. <laughs> boost do you have an opinion on boost axles at all or are you just kind of I've letting never, it go never ridden one i don't know yeah um i'm kind of old school i still got skewers on most of my bikes yeah um i do have a bike that's got um through axle yeah and uh and i like that bike but uh yes i keep ending up on rigid bikes my fat bike which was my retirement gift um became my favorite bike it's fully rigid i'm having more fun on that than anything else that's awesome. Um, make no mistake, though, those four-inch tires are not suspension. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's still rigid, man. <laughs> yeah. So you ride just, like, trail riding with that? Like, oh, no yeah, matter the condition, you just ride, yeah? I That's even cool. took it up to Snow Summit one year, and the hardest thing they had was trying to figure out how to hang it off the hook. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the rims are so big. But, um, That's funny. And there was a few times where I just had to pull over and let, you know, real riders go through. Yeah. Eight inches no. of travel, armor Obviously, and everything. Yeah. I'm out there on my underwear and, and bridge yeah. bike. <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah, let me just get out of the way and I'll hold you up. Um, and there were sections I had to walk because, again, you know, I don't have Yeah, that. yeah. There are certain skills I just don't possess. I'm not a downhill kind of guy. I'm just a cross-country kind of guy. Yeah. And 
I, if, if I get air, it usually means I'm in the process of crashing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you got just a millisecond to get your camera out and catch it. You know? <laughs> That's just funny how fat bikes were advertised as like sand, snow, extreme conditions. And everybody, especially Southern California, just a couple of years ago when I was working at the path. Yeah. They were selling like crazy. The mucklucks from Salsa, we couldn't keep them in stock. That's what I've got. Is that what you have? And I love it. That's so funny. It handles nice. It goes up and down everything. You know. Um, there's times it's probably saved me because of the footprint. You know, you get yeah. some of the rutted sections at a certain time of the year, and where a smaller tire would kind of dig in, or or you get the front rear tire not in the same yeah. rut. You know, I can kind of ride along and, and float across most of it. And well, Danny and I, you remember that? It was the salsa demo out at the Live Oak shop. I have a picture of it. we were on fat bikes. It's the first time I rode a fat bike. I rode no. the uh, really, Danny. No, really. Yeah, you're on there. Really? No. Yeah, I was on the regular bike, and you're on the fat bike. You know, and you just said, no. You're not gonna admit to it, huh? I rode their um, their aluminum frame, and it was like 30 pounds. It was it was fun. It was actually a lot of fun. We went down just the O'Neill Loop there, like Vista Trail and all that stuff. But it was it was cool. It was fun. It was a different experience, but it actually rode pretty well on just regular dirt too. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. I I ride on everything. I've taken it to Snow Summit. You know, I just have fun. That's cool. It's definitely cool. Uh, uh, I think uh, Rim Nordic, they have the uh, Fat Tire Nationals or something like that. Yeah. They did it. I think they started doing it a couple years ago. So I guess still popular. I don't know. There's a guy out at Fontana uh, with a Foes full suspension fat bike, downhill fork, and everything. It's pretty cool. Uh, I don't know if you've seen name? that. I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know the guy's name off the top of my head. But he's got a. Uh, Inverted downhill fork. I think it's like a five inch or six inch travel Bobby. fat tire bike. It's pretty cool. Bobby. He's I think he's a rep for foes. I think it's Bobby. Bobby Acuna. That's who it is. Is it? Yeah. I've he seen was, it all over Instagram for a, for a while. Um, or his DVO he's got on there. Not yeah, he was working for I think RST, that suspension company. Yeah. And, and then he he was started you know, went to, to foes and now he's a rep for those guys. But yeah, he I think he races like that that bike for cross country as well or does something like that. Yeah. It's a pretty cool guy. I was gonna ask you, uh on top of all your tinkering at home with, with frame building, you have a laser etcher that I've seen, like you've talked about it before. Yeah, just do fun stuff. Uh, the idea was that I can laser etch things that you already own when I retired. With the welding, you always have to go buy material to make something. Whether I'm plasma cutting it, welding it, whatever, you still have to go to IMS or you know some manufacturer and buy tubing uh, material. With the laser machine, you know, I can take your favorite coffee cup and laser that, you know, I can you know, whatever, like phone case here, you can just laser stuff. So that was kind of the thing was, you know, keep me busy, keep me off the streets, my wife knows where I'm at, and uh, make a little bit of, you know, money on the side. But the main thing is you don't have to go buy something, you know. Interesting. Around Christmas time, I, I do an amazing number of bamboo cutting boards because people <laughs> want to give those out. Um, <laughs> you know, it cuts, I can cut thin wood, you can make your own custom Christmas ornaments. Mm-hmm. Um, you just name it, you know. It, the laser is kind of a fun thing. It seems fun. Yeah, like it's. It was as much as I could afford to put into it. There's way bigger, better mm-hmm. lasers, um, but you know, it again. I kept it fun. I kept it practical. Um, I may die before I get it actually paid off. But <laughs> <laughs> you also have a, a plasma cutter, right? You, yeah, you did, CMC you did some plasma cutter. Yeah, you did some artwork for oh, wow. uh, for the shop. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so uh, did you do the the live oak? Uh, oh, yeah. wow! I did not do the artwork. Piece. The artist Amy that did that is an amazingly talented person. She did all the artwork, brought it to me on flash drive. Uh, I was just a monkey behind the torch. Um, and then you know, <laughs> literally, yeah, yeah literally. <laughs> yeah, but the idea was to change the security aspect. Instead of boring, ugly bars, and made everybody that come in there feel like they'd just been thrown in an overnight lockup. Um, to something that was visually appealing. And so we used 13 gauge metal, we lagged it all in, made it structural, left all the razor sharp edges. So by the time you break the glass and get through the metal, you know, the cops really should be there. <laughs> you, you, you're gonna need a tetanus shot afterwards? <laughs> we, gotta, we gotta take a picture of that and post that on Facebook. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Actually, I, I was at your house when you were still in the process of, yeah. uh, of, of doing some of that stuff. It's pretty cool. But again, the, the artist that did that, she, because my cutting table is only four foot square. Well, we got windows that are like eight feet across. That's what I was going to ask you. That's huge. So she she matched all the artwork. She did everything. All I did, 
but then some of those little wispy lines, I had to go back and TIG weld all those and make them pretty structural so they, you know, they wouldn't yeah. like rust away or break or something. So yeah, there was some, some detail work, but for the most part, it was just a visually appealing bit of security. That's cool. You, know, you can cover a window, you can, you can just have the sun coming through your bedroom window with this thing screwed to the wood frame around your... Yeah, the silhouette of like silhouette the, of Jordan just kind of doing this thing. I've had one lady was in there wrapping um, some kind of plastic wrap, and so it looked like um, like church glass, you know. Oh, really? Through. Yeah, stained glass. Stained glass, yeah. Yeah, it's stained glass. And I'm like, okay, well, I wouldn't have gone through all that work, but you know. <laughs> sure, yeah, that'll work. That's cool. Yeah, uh, Dennis, you did some you did some stuff for me too uh, with the uh, wine bottle. Remember oh, that? Yeah. That worked out. That worked out pretty damn good. Yeah, you can do a seal because it doesn't affect the, the wine inside. So wine, beer, whatever. I think in your case we we cut off the back labels. Yeah. So that on the front label, you know, you still knew what you were getting. Mm-hmm. So you know they could they could know that they weren't getting like two buck chuck. <laughs> um, and then on the back, you know, <laughs> yeah. we put your message. And so yep. that was kind of cool because really, do you need the warning label that if you drink wine to excess you could get pregnant you you don't need that (laughs) Uh, yeah no we took those labels off (laughs) they come up i mean that was the first time you did something like that where it had some kind of a radius right or yeah you brought some presenting uh, presenting problem bottles yeah because you got some with tapers and stuff on there yeah i remember that i came out of i got lucky um oh they came out great (laughs) yeah how do you how do you account for that do you have to change the angle of some like how, is there there's, you, there's a few calculations you're supposed to do but i was never good in theology just you wing uh, it <laughs> uh, geometry <yeah. laughs> um now it's one of those things where i was doing a, a growler that i had and the seam on the glass hung up on the wheels and so like seven eighths of the artwork came out just perfect and the last little bit was all squished together because it wouldn't advance. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man. That's such a bummer. Good thing that's my growler. <laughs> well, it's funny. You don't have to buy anything, but then if you mess it up, there's no going back, it seems right. like. Right. You cannot erase. Yeah. Well, you use it as a demo piece. Like, oh, it's going to look like this. Don't, don't yeah. worry about this uh, bottom half here. Just look, just look at the top, the top half. That's right. Funny. Well, that's the thing, too, is that, you know, sometimes you just um, kind of wish that you hadn't done that. It's like a but, tattoo. Yeah, exactly. Exactly like a tattoo. Speaking of tattoos, don't you have a, a path tattoo on uh, on yourself there, Dennis? Well, you know the whole asking forgiveness versus permission. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so my wife, I was, I my daughter got me restarted after a bunch of years, like twenty years with no tattoos. My daughter reawoke in the dragon, you know. So I'm going out and starting getting a bunch of tattoos, and my wife goes, "I think this should be your last one." So I'm like okay well you know yes dear <laughs> so I kind of snuck in the path well I was going to sneak it in before I went there and then my wife goes oh I want to add something to it I'm like oh cool you know you know, that's like way permission right yeah so she, she sneaks in the gecko and so I come back and I had taken a path card with me and I said I need this font and everything put it right on top because I was on single speeds for 10 years so I put a single speed cog so then I put the path across the top so first thing I come home, I swear, from the front, somehow she could see it. She goes, you added something to the tattoo. Like, How can you even see that? Eagle eyes. <laughs> yeah. so, so is that like like a King Taco tattoo? You know, remember the King Taco thing where you like you, you tattoo like the King Taco? Uh, remember that, Brenton? You get free tacos for life. So is that like a free admission, like free something for life? or Free right? high fives for life. Something. That's about <laughs> it at the bike shop. <laughs> so I'm going, I'm going in to show it off, and one of the PATH employees comes out, walks past me, and goes, wow, I never bought So he bursts my surprise. I was going to go in and try to like show it off. Oh, and, uh, man. He's already telling everybody. I'm like, oh, never mind. <laughs> if you guys am out, <laughs> right? Just walk away. <laughs> but yeah, I, as far as I know, I'm the only one. Um, there's a bunch of people that claim to be path followers, yeah. but I got proof. So that's, that's is, is, that, is that a cult or what's, what's going on here? Path yeah, cult? I mean, anybody like that's the, the Brent Savidian with the, what's that guy's name? Uh, David Koresh. Yeah. <laughs> He's got to man up and get a tattoo. <laughs> or be loyal. Dave, you're going to get one on your neck right here? Uh, no. No? <laughs> Can't go in any other bike shop after that, Fantastic. that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, now that prevents me from going to the other bike shop. You walk into Rock and Road and they're like, huh. Yeah. Service? Oh, we can, we can always just do one on top of that one or what service? 
Yeah, or, or you know, wear if, pants. <laughs> if you go to another city, it's okay to go into another bike shop because then you can show it off. You know, yeah. But um, yeah, no. Locally, I don't go into another bike shop. <laughs> <laughs> Walk into performance with your pat. Yeah. <laughs> Or if you do, you, you back in so they can see that first. Yeah. And then turn around and go, what's up? <laughs> yeah. Where's my discount? <laughs> I own this now. Right, exactly. Uh, so we have Brent here. Hey, Brent. Uh, how, how, how are you, man? How you doing? Doing well, man. Keeping it together. Good. Bring him up on this. No, no, no. no just oh. He's in the background, so. I was going to get away from the mic. No, no, you're good. Yeah, you're you're good. good. Yeah. That's uh, all I got, really. I mean, what, yeah. what do you think? I think that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, Dan, you got anything? DJ, producer. Producer Danny. No questions? All right. I, I kind of felt pressured now that we have a studio audience here tonight. Yeah, we got a, we got the peanut gallery <laughs> now taking pictures of us. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, it was, it was great meeting you officially. I, mean, I saw you at the path when I was working there for a couple of years, and I never really talked to you, but it was cool to kind of learn more about you know custom frames how you do it and whatnot it's it's interesting i mean i think a lot of people nowadays get hung up on technologies and whatnot but carbon carbon especially but they don't pay attention to you know the grassroots of it all it's, it's well, pretty you awesome read articles and everybody says oh nothing rides like a steel frame yeah i don't know if i buy into that no you know i've got tie i've got aluminum i got steel i got carbon no. um i think it's just fun on whatever you're riding you know as long as you're not crashing your brains out yeah. Um, so you have no preference on material of the, of the bike of the frame. When I was in shape years ago, I rode my one of my steel frames with S bend stays and my tie frame on the exact same course from one day to the next. And there was some stutter bumps up on Cactus that I think the steel frame was more compliant than the tie frame. But see, we didn't get the sexy S bend stays, so I think it was the S bend took out that little harmonic thing make no mistake it was a hardtail mm -hmm. but they yeah. both had the exact same fork on um, everything was basically apples to apples but I thought that the steel frame was a little bit more compliant on just that one section they both climbed the same everything else you know and again I was in shape so that the second day was not a detriment it wasn't you know it wasn't lagging because it was a second day riding mm -hmm. um, but I rode the tie bike first and then the steel bike so you know, but I'm not saying that so I can sell a frame because again, I'll chase you away first. You know, <laughs> go change your stem, go change your handlebars, rotate your handlebars, get a mm -hmm. different angle going, do something. Don't just come in and, and say I want to spend this much money on a custom frame because that doesn't fix anything. Uh, other people would, right? They'd be like, oh, I just want something custom, something different, unique. Yeah. And they'll spend the money for that. Yeah, there's there's the there's a the kind of the one-up kind of feeling it's like i got a custom frame and you don't kind of mm -hmm. thing but no like the material uh you know question is i mean I, i've heard it used before in these companies that are strongly just aluminum like uh common is one of them but there's also a what's that one company that's doing all the long bikes right now uh i can't think of that name uh what is it no there's there's a german company i can't think of that name but their argument is do you want to ride a bike that's steel right now with modern geometry or do you want to ride a carbon bike from 2005 and you, you'd rather get the geometry before the material right so i mean that's where i mean and then obviously with an s-bend versus versus not having the s-bend that's it's all structural differences too if you put an s-bend on the tie it'd probably feel good but i think it's all geometry fit before material i think material and people get hung up on weight on bikes nowadays too i mean my bike weighs 32 pounds it's not heavy by any means but that's considered a tank nowadays where people want that 27 pound carbon bike but for, it costs four thousand dollars more just because yeah. they want to lose that three pounds but yeah. is the geometry right you know well there again when my very first 29 or single speed that i built for myself um it was the lightest bike i've ever personally owned it was like 21 and a half pounds Jeez. Um, because the tires that were available you know it it was forced to be light because i didn't get to put on what i would put on today and i found an interesting thing with with me being 200 pounds 210 the bike underneath me feels different because of the weight mm -hmm. it pinballed off of every little rock and every little thing on the trail because there was like really no stability it just bing 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 yep so um i started putting bigger tires on it started gaining weight and i could actually feel it settle down a little bit yeah um 
when you're going through stream beds and you're going over baby heads and stuff, it's like really, really neat not to be thrown off, you know, line because that's going to be a hard crash in your elbows when you come down on nothing but rocks. Yeah. Yep. Really, really rather stay up on the tires. <laughs> yeah. The down, well, downhill guys nowadays, too, they talk about that. Really, they don't want it to be below a certain weight. I mean, Greg Menard is pretty vocal about his setup and his downhill bikes. And, yeah, anything less than 37 pounds, he says, it just gets too squirrely. It doesn't hold a straight line. The guy that won Richie Rude, the guy that won the Enduro World Series last year, his bike's 33 pounds. And you have these guys around here that are trying to get a 28-pound Nomad. It's like, who's doing the right thing, you know? I mean, not to say that you're riding a pro's bike, but a light bike is you're compensating for something that you need to work on personally, I think. I mean, a light bike is... I mean, yeah, Dave? Exactly. No, no. <laughs> Five pounds off your bike does feel nice, but, I mean, it's is it really worth it in the long run? I mean, geometry's got to be right for sure. I think for EWS, uh, the guys are... They're, they build their bikes so... Well, their tires are super heavy, too. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're, you know, they, I think they're designed for... Uh, just surviving the race and as should everybody's bike though i mean i I mean it's not for me to dictate but i think if if you're going to be a trail rider there's no reason to have stuff that's going to be so light that you're worried about breaking it but it shouldn't be so heavy that you're worried about weight either Mm -hmm. but that's a whole different topic well for one of my 24 hour races my bike lost 30 pounds (laughs) really because i got in shape (laughs) (laughs) i just walked into that one didn't i yeah i put an end to that one there you go exactly just move some weight out that's the yeah, I that's the hardest part, you know. It is. I mean, Definitely I was starving is. during a race. I, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the bike was lighter. Yeah. <laughs> me, me and Dave are gonna we're gonna we're gonna do a heads up race. Uh, November. Anzac. What? Anzac. Anzac. Oh, oh yeah. Put him in a coffin. The three of you. Come on. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's. We're doing the eight-hour individual solos. Yeah. Allegedly. Can I go spectate? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to need all the support. Of, you know what? I, I did my first race of the year uh, over the hump at on um, the Path Night, which is last last week. Yeah, last, last week. week. And uh, what carried me, what kept me going was uh, people cheering me on and encouraging me. Because, it helps. It definitely helps. Man. Thanks, Dave. Dave Hardwick. Yep, thanks. <laughs> oh, you were, you were there in spirit, friend? Yeah. <laughs> it's You know what? You guys make it look easy. Like, you know, on my second lap, Danny Danny went by and he was pushing me. I'm like, dude, that's what I need. Dan- Danny makes it look easy? Well, you make it look You guys, I said you guys. <laughs> you guys make it look easy. It's, it's tough, man. I mean, it, you know, racing over the hump is tough. Oh, and, you yeah, know, it, dude. Sport, sport class in quotation. Well, I, I race we beginner, but there's a lot of sandbaggers. But anyways, but, I mean, it's not a tough course, but it's just the pace. You know, yeah, like... Definitely. I thought we were all gonna go slow. I'm like, nah, and everybody's gone. Like, pew. I'm like, whoa. Forty-five minutes of just peaking the whole time. Yeah, I, I don't. I usually don't cramp, but like, towards the second lap, towards the end, I was like, I was like, I'm feel sitting. I'm like, dude, what, what the heck? Yeah, it's hard like, to ride the. Next I'm hoping day. Dave cramps when we do our race, you know. So it'll be wow. That's one, that's one less. really rude. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, he knows I already said that. <laughs> I will say that Zach and I have both ridden over eight hours. Pushikona. Oh, two well, years ago, I haven't done that yet. Yeah, we were out before sunset. All right, well, I gotta start. That's longer than I've heard. Yeah, I, I gotta start training that and start doing some eight-hour training. Yeah, I gotta say, Darren Maxwell puts on some fantastic rides, and he goes out and does that stuff every week. He's insane. <laughs> I don't know how he does it. I really don't. And then if you say that to him, he's like, "You just gotta get out there. You just gotta go. <laughs> Stop talking about it. Just go." And it's like, and, I, and if you don't come back with blood, then you didn't. You didn't ride. You didn't, you didn't ride. Hard enough. Right. <laughs> yeah. You could have right. gone faster. Every good ride has a hiker bike, as he says. Yeah, that's right. Or it has a hiker bike in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a passion. I mean, that's you know, that's a that's a passion that he has to. We to should put get him a podcast. Why haven't yeah. I've never even thought about that? We'll, Darren, we'll, we'll is, get him on. He's an amazing guy. He's yeah, got awesome. such a good outlook. And he's so helpful to so many people. He carries a saw. I mean, if, if yeah. there's something on the trail that isn't right, he takes it out, gets it out of the way. Yeah, he snaps a picture of it, cuts down like a, like a foot in diameter yeah. log, just yeah. saws it for like an hour. Did you see the one? No, he said the one was like something like 12 minutes. I'm like, uh-uh. 12 minutes no. to sign away. <laughs> yeah. You know, there, there's some some going on with that guy. <laughs> he boxes every day. Yeah, he, he's, uh, he's tossing boxes at the Albertsons, right? Yeah. He's, distribution, so. He's got so the total funny. cardio work. Yeah, he does. Workload. But um, he goes out and rides a million miles a week, too. Yeah, he does. He's been working a lot of hours lately. I've been seeing like his posts on Facebook, and he's like, work, work, work. Yeah, you know, sad and, hours. I mean, like, he worked 15 days straight with no time off. Yeah. 
you know, that's hard to come home, eat, sleep, go that's, back to work. That yeah, that'll drive me nuts. Yeah, he's in the process of like moving too, and he's he's, he's, I know, he's, he's, just, he's killing he just moved, it. I think he, yeah, he just yeah. got uh, yeah, I just saw it on Facebook. That's awesome. He he, he cool. told me I saw him uh, uh, over the weekend. He's he's pretty close to one of the trails or something, and he just kind of took off and he was through um, uh, San Juan San Juan area, I guess, and uh, through Caspers. What's out there? Caspers, the regional Caspers, park. Yeah, there. so he's out there, and I guess he. He was gonna go the wrong way. Stopped and talked to one of the rangers, and he goes, "Yeah, don't go that way. That's like a dead end." So he ended up like just running around, exploring like where he lives now. So he has to ride, and that's his thing. Yeah, he so. has to ride. He doesn't doesn't matter. He just gotta go out and ride. We'll have to get him on. That'd be cool. Yeah, for sure. But uh, yeah, that's, that's that's all I got. got. <laughs> oh, Jeez. I mean, I've been waiting yeah. it all. Long, <laughs> yeah. so hey, I thank uh, uh, Montaigne uh, for giving us a home and the awesome beer that we drank. For sure. I had a. Uh, belligerent uh, Bradley. What you have, Jordan? I had the uh, General or uh, Professor Perea Sour. It's pretty good. I Dennis, how'd that. you like your beer? It's pretty good. Yeah? I've uh, got a growler waiting for me downstairs before I leave. There <laughs> what, you go. What, what do you usually drink when you come here or, or to Spontane? What's your favorite beer? Sadly, I haven't gone out to his place since he was Rancho Santa Margarita. So it was his first time here, huh? This is my first oh. time at this location. Welcome. Nice. Now, <laughs> now you know how close it is to home. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, I, I, I still have that commercial driving uh, mentality. Mm-hmm. I won't drink and drive. Right. You know, I've got like one and a half, two beer limit if I'm, at, you know, having dinner. And then I get home. And then me and my dog, we all split a beer. <laughs> Not intentionally. If you turn your head. You know. Now, Mouse looks like he's a drinker. He, he's blown the froth off a couple of them. <laughs> yeah. And he's got like foam all around his lips. Yeah. And he's like, no, man, it wasn't me. <laughs> Look at the dachshund. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all the way down there, can't even reach. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's up on the. Yeah. No, I'm not believing it, man. <laughs> I don't want to thank you guys for listening. Uh, Jordan, where can people find us? We're on uh, Facebook at NGFE Radio, Instagram at NGFE underscore radio, and uh, SoundCloud. Yeah. SoundCloud uh, is where we're going to post this. Obviously, if you're listening to it, you'll probably see it there, NGFE Radio. Um, any last uh, comments or anything you got? Thanks for having me. I hope I didn't embarrass myself too much. I mean, I didn't really know what I was getting into. <laughs> no, you're fine. This is awesome. It's, we're just having a conversation. Yeah, just just, this is fun. Just uh, wanted to get to know you more. So get to know you in general. I mean, yeah. It's, it's the first for some of us, but yeah, it's cool. Yep. But uh, and uh, I guess we have listeners in Canada. Do we really? Canadian listeners. Who do we got? Some hosers, eh? I don't know. Where are you? Uh, I don't know. Danny? On Instagram, someone said something or what? No, it's on the SoundCloud. That's awesome. And uh, what, Missouri or something like that? Missouri. Shout Getting out to those right. listeners out there. Cool. Keep, keep them coming. Alrighty. Thank you guys for listening. Which, which episode is this now? Are we on six, five, six? Five or six. I don't know we're on. Either way. Yeah. Oh, and we are uh, we have a race coming up this weekend out at Toro, the uh, second round of uh, California Endures race. So We're uh, not going to be out there, but we'll... Uh, we'll do a post-race uh, recap uh, when we get back. Yeah, for sure. Alrighty, thanks guys. Nice, Thank you. Uh, nice talking to you. Thanks Dennis. again, Dennis. And, uh, thank thank, you. Thanks. Oh, All right. Thanks for the peanut gallery in the background. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll see you guys next week. All right, thanks. <laughs>